This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We're delighted today to get a chance to visit with Kevin Sowers. Kevin's had this remarkable career in healthcare. He's currently the president of Johns Hopkins Health System. And he'll tell us the rest of the title in a second. We're going to talk to him about Johns Hopkins, a few points of pride, how Johns Hopkins became sort of the most trusted name in reporting and statistics with COVID-19, and, and a great deal more. Kevin, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Well, Scott, first of all, thank you for having me with you today. I appreciate it very much, the opportunity. Um, I am Kevin Sowers. I'm the president of Johns Hopkins Health System and executive vice president of uh, Johns Hopkins Medicine. Uh, Prior to coming to Hopkins three years ago, I was at Duke University um, Hospital uh, and Duke University Health System for 32 years and started my career as a nurse. Well, magnificent. And let's talk about that for a moment. You've had this remarkable career, starting as a nurse, to becoming one of the most respected presidents, one of the most respected health systems in the world. Talk for a moment about your career and any key pivotal moments, or the key pivotal moments that you saw that sort of saw your transition from bedside or clinician to leader and leadership. Tell us a little bit about that pivotal moments, transition, evolution, and more. Yeah, Scott, you know, it's interesting. There's two pivotal moments I can really speak to. Um, And the first one was I was an oncology nurse. So I went to Duke in 1985. And you have to remember, when I became a nurse, nurses were not allowed to be CEOs. That was not a career track that was possible at that point in time. So I didn't become a nurse uh, wanting to become a CEO. That was I wanted to become a nurse to make a difference in people's lives. And so uh, I went to graduate school at Duke uh, to get my uh, master's degree um, in oncology nursing and became a clinical nurse specialist. And it was during that time that I was serving as an oncology clinical nurse specialist that um, uh, my boss, the director of oncology nursing, called me to her office one day. And it was in the era of managed care. And when I tell you this story today, it will not be a big deal, but of course, Back in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a big deal. And they were getting ready to open up a, a pilot unit um, in the hospital um, to address uh, what had happened in the Bu- Balanced Budget Act, where they cut a lot of GME funding. And it was going to be a nurse-run unit, um, and the providers were not going to be residents and interns. It was going to be nurse practitioners and PAs. And, of course, you know, I say that today, and it's not a big deal because that's a lot of our care models across the country that includes those types of providers. But back then it was a big deal. She told me that the nurse manager um, was uh, leaving uh, and had resigned and um, the unit was scheduled to open in 30 days. And I needed to go down and write the policies and procedures, finish the construction project, train the staff. And she kept going down the list. And I sat there and um, it was a pivotal moment and a, a good lesson in leadership um, because I said to her, I said, Ms. Nevajan, I am sure that you will find somebody to do this, but I really love being a clinical nurse specialist. And it was one of those moments where I can remember her hands came up on the desk and she said, Kevin, are you being insubordinate? And I said, Ms. Nevajan, I've, I've never been subordinate a day in my life. And she said, well, I need to teach you a valuable lesson. There will be times um, in the life of an organization where the organization needs you to do something that you may not want to do, 
and I'm telling you the organization needs you to lead right now. And if you're telling me no, then you're being insubordinate. Um, and I said, Ms. Nevajan, I'll get right down there and I'll start to work on that. Uh, the interesting part about that story is um, I didn't raise my hand to get into leadership. But the second part of that story is sometimes people will see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And it's it's at that moment where she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And she pushed me. And while it was uncomfortable at the time, um, she pushed me into leadership and into management, um, which um, has been uh, an incredible journey for me. The, the second story I will share is um, back in um, uh, back in 1990, uh, excuse me, 2003, um, in the life of Duke Hospital, we had a horrific event. Um, it was the Jessica Centillion event, and it made uh, international news, and we had transplanted a mismatched heart um, into a young uh, Hispanic girl who, whose name was Jessica. And, um, you know, we made a huge medical error, and um, every regulatory agency in the country was in that hospital. And at the time, I was serving as the interim president of one of our community hospitals. And I'll never forget, um, Dr. Fulkerson called me on a Friday and said, listen, I need you in my office tomorrow morning um, on Saturday, because on Monday, we're going to announce that you are going to be officer of Duke Hospital, and I'm going to have you focus on the operations and the safety and quality of this hospital, and um, I'm about to go in to CMS and tell them I'm making a leadership change, and, and I'm going to put you in charge. And um, so the, the next day I went to his office, and um, uh, I really uh, went into his office, and there were stacks of findings from the regulatory agents, and he said, I want to leave you here, and I'm going to go around, because he was an ICU doctor, and um, I'll never forget him leaving the office. And I looked at those stacks and I thought, oh my gosh, I, there's no way I could do this. And I started page by page and then um, took some home over the weekend to finish reading and met with him again on Sunday and said, okay, you got a deal, but here's what's going to happen. Um, for the first 120 days, I will, will not attend any meetings. Um, uh, and he looked at me and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to put scrubs on and I'm going to go to work with the people of Duke Hospital. Um, and what was interesting about that was I realized at that critical moment that the workforce had no reason to trust leadership because had leadership really spent the time that they should have in understanding the issues and problems um, that led to some of the safety issues. And so I made beds. I rounded with the docks. I spent time in the OR, I was in sterile processing, you name any department in the hospital, and I went to work in that in those areas. And I, I proactively told them, here's what I'm going to do, here are the questions I'm going to ask. These are not gotcha questions I really do want to understand. And at the end of 120 days, I'll come back and tell you what I learned from you, and then together we're going to figure out how we're going to fix these issues moving forward. And I, I learned the value and importance as a leader um, that in critical moments, uh, the importance and value of listening to your workforce because they have the knowledge and expertise 
that you need to understand when there are issues within your organization and really may have uh, more insight into the fixes that have to take place uh, to improve your system's performance. And so um, I, I have learned that and have kept that with me um, uh, along my leadership journey. And of course, I've had, had to use that uh, upon my arrival to Hopkins also. So two critical po points, pivotal points for me and different leadership lessons I've learned. And, and, and take a moment, the big fixes that had to be done, were they complex fixes are they simple fixes? Are they cultural fixes? When you're trying to make those kinds of improvements, talk to us a little bit about, you know, some thoughts on that. You know, Scott, if I've learned anything, and, and people get tired of hearing me say this, it's really around challenging yourself. Do you have the right governance process in place? Do things get to the board that really need to go to the board? And um, are they fully disclosed and transparent? Second of all, do you have structure, the right structure that allows things from a governance perspective to be raised up? And the third thing is, do your processes support the structure that you've uh, really developed? And, and have you built safety and quality into all of the elements of, of governance structure and process? And um, I, I would say to you that um, in some instances, there were easy fixes. And those are the ones you want to take on first because you get some wins and all of a sudden people go, okay, um, he's really committed or she's really committed. Um, secondly, um, I would say that um, after you do that, there are some complex issues. But I, I would say the, the key driver of whether you're going to fix them or complex issues is do you have the right culture? Do you have a culture where um, people feel they can reach out to leadership with issues that um, they will be responded to, um, that their issues will be heard and addressed? Um, those are all key critical elements. And do you have a culture that is a just culture um, uh, that supports employees when they do make human errors or or is it a, 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 a culture of punishment because that forces people underground where they don't always tell you about um, the issues that may be within the organization? So the, the cultural piece is huge, and, and that's a five-year journey. And, and I know leaders get really, um, you know, sometimes upset that it's not happening fast enough, but I, I would – tell people you've got to be patient and you've got to be kind and you've got to be communicative and, and fair and consistent um, as you begin to approach uh, the cultural piece, because it's an important part of the leadership journey. And take a moment. Duke rebounded from that to be, again, one of the most respected healthcare systems in the world, academic medical centers, one of the in, in brain cancer and some other areas, one of the great places in the country. So you would say that at the end of the day, the cultural change, the, the, the fixes, the improvements were sustainable and terrific there. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, it really is, uh, if I learned anything, faculty and staff will pay attention to what leaders pay attention to. 
Um, and because I was so focused on paying attention to quality and safety in our performance and that I would be present in those meetings where it would be discussed, they knew that from a values perspective, it wasn't just something that was a part of our value system or excuse me, our values that's printed on the wall. It truly was a lived value. And, and that's a part of the culture change is when you, when you have your values, uh, Make sure that, number one, as a leader, you can connect to those values and understand that people are watching you every day to see if you are living those values. And that is an incredible part of the culture change journey that that, uh, leaders need to think about. I want to ask you one more question. I want to come back to a couple of things at Johns Hopkins, which is itself so an amazing, remarkable institution. You had mentioned that when you started your career, there wasn't a track for nurses to become CEOs. Now you've got some of the very best CEOs in the country, and immediately comes to mind people like Jenny Spicio, Nancy Asia, yourself, that had the nurse background and leadership, and, and are now CEOs or presidents of great institutions. You had mentioned this relentless focus on safety and quality. When I talk to some of the great leaders in the country, some of who I respect the most, whether it's Howard Kern, Johnny Specio, Nancy, yourself, they are so focused on quality and safety, quality and safety. And what you said, you said something that when the CEO or leadership focuses on something, and they focus on it consistently, people then know that that's important. Can you talk about that a little bit further? Yeah, you know, if if you uh, so, I'll give you for instance the structure I uh, built and and building and even further enhancing because you know Hopkins has always been known for its work in quality and safety, but how do you really integrate that work so that you become uh, a learning system from learning from each other from the the mistakes that are made and how do you have the right tracking tools in place to track performance and ongoing performance. And, uh, you know, uh, a lesson learned from our all children's event is how do you take um, the high risk programs and on an annual basis, look at how they're performing to other, from an outcomes perspective from other programs in the country, and then also going down to the provider to see if you have any outliers um, those are critical moments where if you aren't a part of those discussions and it's being led only by other parts of your leadership team, um, the lack of the, the ultimate person, because at the end of the day, I feel I'm ultimately accountable, which I am. And uh, because of that, I have to hold myself accountable to making sure I understand those quality and safety events and understand what we could do to be better. Now, it's not my it's not my role to dig into the the details of um, the best way to fix it. Um, that's why I have a leadership team around me that can do that. But I still have to pay attention and understand and be a part of those conversations uh, as we try to execute on on becoming a better organization. Thank you. And Kim, let me ask you this question. Johns Hopkins has become the most respected name in sort of COVID statistics, COVID reporting, COVID almost everything. How did that happen exactly? Tell us a little bit about that. Because 
that obviously just rose this year. How did that happen that Johns Hopkins became the most respected place for those to go to stats and track what's going on? Well, you know, Scott, it was interesting. Um, we live in a very interesting geopolitical space right now. Um, you know, in my lifetime, in my career, I've never uh, been in a situation where science has been challenged um, in the way that it has. I also think that we live in a time um, when um, I, I believe that, uh, uh, you know, things have been sensationalized uh, to a point where it goes beyond facts. And so uh, as a leadership team, we really set forth uh, that we were not going to get caught up in that. And we were going to base all of our statements uh, upon sci science and facts. Um, and we purposefully did that. And I've got to give it to our School of Engineering and the work they did to first set up that website. That website was originally created overnight. Um, and uh, some very talented individuals in our School of Engineering um, developed that. Um, and, you know, very quickly we learned that when it was starting to get uh, a million hits a day, it now gets over two million hits a day, that um, clearly we were going to have to support it in a very different way. We also learned the value of the schools within the university coming together and really putting other facts from other aspects of our life um, and from the different experts within our schools on the website. So the website grew originally out of the School of Engineering, but now all of the schools have engaged in that website and it has become uh, a, a, a global resource for folks. I would also say that we made a commitment that we weren't um, going to be in a situation where we were going to quote unquote um, sell our brand to try to uh, help people with COVID. We were gonna offer our science and our facts to people to help them think through. And so we had telephone calls with the movie industry, the music industry, uh, a variety of uh, the financial industry. I can go down a list of different groups that we have, have had phone calls with our experts on to, to provide them advice um, for free um, uh, because we really felt it was, it was a time that the facts and science were critically important in a world that wasn't always based uh, in those uh, variables. And so that's kind of how we got there, Scott. And let me ask you a couple questions about it, because one of the things that I find, one of the reasons I like it so much, and I, I'm on it, I'm not the two million visits a day, but I'm on it several times a day. The thing I find fascinating about it, it is very fact-driven, it is very science-driven, but it is also almost entirely, what's absent from it entirely is a right or left narrative, is a narrative about this state's right, this state's wrong, this state's doing this, this state's doing that. And so what happens is, regardless of your politics, it is very easy to embrace it and read it and listen and learn and, and, and look at the stats. Like, you don't have to be like somebody says, well, this state's horrible, it's a blue state, and it's horrible. You say, well, not exactly, here's the stats in that state. This state's horrible, its stats are so bad, it's a red state, it's nobody's wearing masks, look how bad their positivity rates are. Like, well, not exactly, here's what it is. But it, it's, it's, it's fabulously devoid of political narrative 
which makes it extremely easy for people to read and learn from, regardless of where they're coming from. Is that by design that it's free of narrative? Um, well, for us, this was not about politics. This was about providing the public um, the science as we know it and, and as we continue to learn about it and providing the public with the facts. Um, and people can choose based upon their own politics what they want to do with that. But it was never our intent um, to to get get involved in the political discussion. It was just our intent to base everything on facts and science. Well, and, and I guess the, the the great compliment is it's it's cited probably as often, whether by Fox or CNN, right, left, whoever it is, by everybody, because it really has avoided this. You know, these are the facts and we hate you. These are the facts and we hate you. It's really, these are the facts. And this is the science as we see it. And it's clear as day that there's not a bone to pick rather than trying to improve the science and the information on it. And, and it's, it's really impressive. Let me, let me ask you another question, Kevin. Is, um, talk about Johns Hopkins a little further and, and a few points of pride in Johns Hopkins. I, I know one of the most elite academic medical institutions in the country, but also magnificent at serving underserved communities. Tell us about sort of what you view as a few of the key points of pride in Johns Hopkins. You know, Scott, one of the reasons that I came to Hopkins, because um, number one, I was not looking for a job. And um, uh, so uh, it was an opportunity that was presented because I thought for sure I would retire from Duke. But when I came and met the people, um, the people of Hopkins, um, and I mean our, our faculty, our researchers, uh, uh, every member of our staff are, are truly dedicated to the mission. And that's an incredible foundation to build upon. Uh, and and it, it, it's a tradition that has been there for over 125 years now. Um, and it, it's a, a tradition that was really built upon Johns Hopkins, you know, donating the original dollars um, to set up um, uh, the uh, hospital. And in that original document, he wanted to make sure that we served the underserved communities. Um, uh, Mary, uh, excuse me, um, Meg, um, Mary Elizabeth Garrett uh, was also the woman who raised um, $5 million to, to start the School of Medicine. And a part of her commitment in raising that money was they had to be willing as the first School of Medicine in the country to admit women. And so early on, there was also a commitment to, to diversity and inclusion. Um, and so if you look back from a historical perspective, um, it, it's been a part of the culture. It, it's also an inspiring culture in terms of, of being in rooms with really brilliant people and you hear them talking about brilliant ideas and, and ways that they want to approach uh, understanding problems and uh, not just basic science, but also clinical trials and also health uh, equi healthcare equity issues in the community. And then at the same time, you leave the room with them, and they're some of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Um, so 
I was really drawn to the people of Johns Hopkins and uh, very proud of the work they do and very proud to be a member of their team. Um, and so that that is a moment of pride. I would say second, um, I have been very proud of how our team has responded to this crisis. Um, you know, none of us ever have thought about or lived uh, through this type of crisis, but um, the team has been exceptional. Um, even as we prepare for the second surge, I know across the country, healthcare providers are tired. There's mental health issues evolving. Um, we've continued to try to provide resources, uh, but time and time again, people are standing up and trying to do the right thing to serve our community and the citizens of our community. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that moment. And finally, the third piece really is the ongoing commitment of Hopkins Medicine to, to, to excellence uh, and to a person. Um, that's the one thing that I continue to hear from our patients, our families, is just the excellent care that they receive at Hopkins. Uh, and so um, that is another prideful moment is to be getting that type of feedback from, uh, from you know, people who interact with us from a patient and family level. Magnificent. Kevin, I want to thank you for uh, all joining us today in the Becker's Healthcare Podcast and all that you do. Magnificent institution, magnificent what Johns Hopkins has done to educate the rest of us through this crisis. And, and, and what a remarkable story of leadership and career development and growth. We'd love to have you on again for to give advice to emerging leaders on how to build their careers, how to think about their careers and so forth. We'll, we'll try and uh, bother you again at some point to do that, but it really is a great pleasure to visit you. I've heard just the most remarkable things about you, and what a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you. Scott, thank you so much.